Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Dr. Dick Foe. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. Well, hello. My name's Dick Foth, and I'm going to reboot to 28. I just, no, I just. When you listen to Pastor Mark, what I often hear in him is precision. 40 days, 714, so forth. Let me give you a precise date that's really important. December 21st, 2017, Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Emma Jean, nine pounds, five ounces, was born. And the importance of that, well, there, there are probably a lot of people think it's important, but that means that Ruth and I, who have four children and 12 grandchildren, now have our first great-grandchild. So here's the deal. Those of you who are grandparents, you get this, and there aren't very many grandparents here, but, but the, uh, when, when you become a grandparent, there's a sense of immortality because you're going past the next generation. When you become a great-grandparent, you're officially old. So there you are. A week ago, two weeks ago last Wednesday, had the privilege of being in Seattle, Washington, Kirkland to be exact, speaking at a university, Northwest University. And uh, they were doing a chapel series called Rehearing the Scripture. And they said, we're going to have these eight or ten chapels, and we want to take an, a scripture verse that many people would know, and we want to rehear it. Because sometimes when you know a scripture, you know, it just it, it gets old to you. And um, so they sent me a list of scriptures, and I chose one. So I told Pastor Mark when we were preparing the series, I said, I feel like I'm supposed to share that same message. It's not exactly the same because it won't be exactly the same tomorrow morning. I just got to tell you, that's just how it works. But um, this is the one I chose. So, so the Redskins are playing the Cowboys, right? Uh, I don't know if it's a real game or whether, whatever. Depends on the season, doesn't it? And so they're out there at Landover, and, uh, and they have a chance it's the, it's the fourth quarter. They got three seconds. The Redskins have the ball on the 23rd on the uh, yard line, you know, <laughs> yard line, yard line 20, whatever it is. And they, and they call and they call in the field goal kicker and they've got that sky cam, you know, on a, on a cable. And so the, the kick goes up and it's dead center. It arcs up, and as it arcs back down, I don't know if you see it so much these days, but back in the day, as that ball would come down and the camera would follow it, there'd be some dude in the stands holding up a sign. Anybody remember what the sign was? John 3.16. Now, most of the crowd would have no idea. Like, what, is that a hashtag thing, or is that a code to his girlfriend? What is that? John 3.16. John 3.16 comes from a gospel, one of the four, and I want to set it up this way. The gospel of John is a collaboration, if you will, between an old fisherman and the Holy Spirit. He's an old man who as a young man grew up on the Sea of Galilee, fished every night because they fish at night on the Sea of Galilee, and um, he never stopped fishing. The only difference 
for him at age 80 or 85 or however old he was when he wrote the Gospel of John, wrote his story of Jesus, was what he was catching. If I could, if I could take a snapshot or do it, is it an Instagram where you take the picture and send it? If we did one of those, this is what it would look like, Matthew 4, 18 through 22. Here's how the story goes. As Jesus was walking by the side of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So my, my core question here is, so which Jesus was it that they were following? Like, which Jesus is that? Is that the institutional Jesus? Like, like the Christian Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't a Christian. I'm, sounds like heresy, doesn't it? He, he was a Jew, right? And um, if you go to the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says that Jesus was the founder of Christianity. That's a lie. That's not true. He didn't come to found a system. He didn't come to do that. So how about, well, he's a good teacher. Well, if you read C.S. Lewis, he doesn't leave you much option. He said, Jesus just didn't come as a good teacher. He said, if you follow me, you have eternal life. I mean, you, he's, I'll transform your life. In, he said, somebody who says that either has to be true or he has to have the intellect of a poached egg, something along that line is what he says. Maybe he's the denominational Jesus. Maybe he's the Baptist Jesus or the Pentecostal Jesus or the Roman Catholic. Which Jesus is he that we're being called to follow? Maybe he's the ATM Jesus. When I need some Jesus, I'll get me some. You know, maybe he's that Jesus. Or, or if you're on an airplane, the life vest is under your chair, Jesus. Maybe he's the life insurance Jesus. Or maybe he's the friend of the family Jesus. Well, our, our family's always, always gone to church. Maybe he's that Jesus. Why not? Some of those things are true. The problem with those Jesuses is they sell him short. That's the real big short. This is the Jesus that when you read Colossians 1.15, it says, this is the firstborn among creation. This is the one who speaks galaxies into it. That's the Jesus I'm following. I don't want to follow one of these other lesser Jesuses, if you will. But what caused Jesus to drop, or John to drop it all and follow Jesus? There's, there's so much we don't know about this encounter. We don't know exactly how old Jesus is. We think he's about 30. We don't know how old John is. I think, I'm thinking he's a 20-something, you know, maybe. And uh, had, they, had they met before? Had John taken Jesus out fishing? Because that happens, you know. Why did he choose fishermen? Maybe it was the first four were fishermen. Maybe it's because of their tenacity. Get up every day and just do what they do. Because if you're going to follow him, we need to get up every day and do what he calls us to do. On Tuesday, well, on Monday, I'm going to go pick up my grandson, Sam Clements, who's flying in from Eugene, Oregon. He's going to spend the week with me at the National Prayer Breakfast and stuff. And Sam is a sharp young man. He's a freshman in college. He's got bright red hair. I like him just because he has hair. 
And, he, and he, I'm going to pick him up, and we're going to drive to Charlottesville, and we're going to go to a university student group called Chi Alpha, where they have 700 students in small groups at UVA. And then afterwards, we're going to drive to Newport News, stay overnight, get up in the morning, and drive to Wanchese, North Carolina. Anybody know where Wanchese, North Carolina is? Wow. Really? You're only five hours away. I would recommend you go there. It's Roanoke Island. And in 1972, right on the tail end, of, tail end of Hurricane Agnes in June of that year, we had gone there for a vacation. Ruth and I were pastoring a congregation sort of like this at the University of Illinois. And I took the family down there, but we can't do much because it's still windy. And I'm sitting on the pier, and this guy comes walking down the pier, mid-40s. Handsome dude, I have to say that. He had deep-set blue eyes, he had his, his dockers, they didn't have dockers then, but he had his khakis rolled up, and broad-shouldered, and as he comes by, I said, hi, and he said, hi, and he had this accent that was like somewhere between the east end of London and Andy Griffith. It was somewhere <laughs> in that, and I said, uh, hi, I'm Dick Foth. He said, oh, I'm Charles Daniels. He said, what are you doing? Dick, I said, I'm just down here on vacation. I said, what do you do? Are you a fisherman? He said, oh, I am my whole life. He said, what do you do in Illinois, Dick? I said, I, I'm a pastor. He said, you don't say. I ain't no preacher, but I've been saved 15 years proud of it. <laughs> I had a radio program at that time on CBS in the area where we were, 10 minutes on a Saturday morning between Sports Scoreboard and Charles Osgood's Newsbreak. And... Um, I used to interview people. It was just 10 minutes, and it was designed to bug pagans. And uh, I just, uh, I asked Charles if I could interview him, because he said, you want to go fishing with me? That's why I think Jesus may have gone fishing, because when you don't, when, you can just fill in the gaps, I think, with sanctified, hopefully, imagination, and, you know, sort of play it in your head. Like, what I'm telling you is not Bible, but I'm telling you what could have been. And so I went fishing with Charles Daniels. And they fished with long nets in the sound, that area between the coast of Carolina and the outer off islands. It's 100 miles long, 30 miles wide, 15 feet deep at the deepest. And they string a mile of nets between two boats and just drag it and pull up the net. And they, and they fish barefoot. And so he took me out on his boat and I interviewed him with that diesel engine going in the background. And uh, first time I had grits in my life was on the Miss Molly, which is the name of the boat that he built with a 250-horsepower Ford engine and all that kind of stuff. And when I saw Charles's feet, it helped me understand in part what it must be like when Jesus said to Peter, the fisherman, I need, I need to wash your feet. Peter said, no, you can't. You, you remember that? But when you fish barefoot for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and you're down there wading among the fish in the bottom of the boat. You've got scars and scabs and all kinds of stuff on your feet. And these guys sort of hang onto the edge of the boat like they have prehensile toes. It's unbelievable. I wonder if one day John had said to him, you want to go fishing with me? Because Jesus was a carpenter, you know. And so that would be unique. But why? Was it his look, his manner, if I had to choose why they followed Jesus, I would say it was his voice. And I had written this down before I actually remembered that that pastor wrote this book called Whisper. And if you go to the first chapter, you will see voice unpacked 
in 17 different, it's really a profound thing. But there was something about that voice. I've often said if I could have a Bible and add something to it, which sounds heretical, but if I could add something to it, I'd like to add inflection. When you hear him say, don't worry about tomorrow, I think he sort of grins and says, because tomorrow's going to take care of itself, and the, you know, there's something about that. But I'm, I don't think it was as tone or as timbre, as volume, as intensity. I think it was the authority. The voice of Jesus carries authority. Originality, author, originality, he's the word. That voice heals wounds, draws in the outcasts, calls out the arrogant, quiets the storm, blesses the loaves and fish. I mean, when you, when you go through John, when you, when you go through his gospel and others, you have this fellow blind from birth, and I can see him saying, come, come over here, and he says, now I'm going to put some mud in your eye, and then I want you to go wash it out and be cool. That's my paraphrase. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. How about the guy who was dead? Lazarus, come out here. How about to the storm? Peace, be still. Or at the tomb when they thought he was gone and Mary went to the tomb and she thought, she couldn't tell who he was, thought he was the gardener until he spoke. And she'd heard it a hundred times, maybe hundreds of times, when he said, Mary, or on the cross, when he looks down at his mother and points to John, the old fish, and says, son, this is your mother. Mother, behold your son. When he writes the gospel, he's probably, we don't know again for sure, but this is toward the end of the first century, five decades after Jesus called them from the nets. He's an old man now, John is. About the same time, the book of the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we understand something of the gospel. We get to Revelation, we say, well, let's go back to the gospel. I don't understand all that, you know. But Revelation 1.15 says it this way. His feet, because he sees the Christ in, in that chapter of the book of Revelation. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His voice was like Niagara. His voice was that way, like crashing surf. So he calls the four disciples, Jesus does, and says, come with me, I'll show you how to fish for people. Whatever the reason, John believed Jesus and followed him. He believed Jesus and followed him. So I'm sitting at the Old Debit Grill years ago, and many of you have heard me tell this story. It's one of my favorite ones, and I'm sitting with an attorney here in town, very prominent, served in several administrations, very bright, Yale Law and all that. And one day he said, Dick, if a fellow wanted to be a Renaissance man, should he know something about the Bible? And I said, well, you know, it's a, it's a bestseller. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, where would a fellow start? And I said, well, there's an old part and a new part in the... In the new part, there's these four fellows, and they tell the story of Jesus. I said, why don't you just check that out, and then we can talk about it. So he said, I'm going on a vacation to Martha's Vineyard next week. I'll just... Two weeks later, we meet at the Old Abbot again, and I said, so what do you think? He said, you know, I didn't read every word, but I read all four of them. And he said, you know, those first three are really a lot alike. And if you go to seminary or go to a class here or something, they'll tell you, you know, Matthew's for a Jewish community generally, and Mark is sort of the paperback penguin edition for Roman soldiers, and Luke is the historian, it's for the larger group. But John 
he said he's really different. Because John has an agenda. When he pens his account under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he has an aim. Because John really did believe Jesus promised that he'd make him fishers of people. He never stopped believing what he heard that day, never stopped acting on what he believed, never lost sight of that goal. And the other folks didn't either. But, but there's something, there was something that happened with John that when he writes his account, he wants us to believe what he found to be true. He wants us to trust the Jesus he trusted. He wants us to experience what he had experienced. He wants to persuade us to believe. And so when he tells the story, he describes the catch moment after moment, encounter after encounter, from the opening lines of John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, to the closing sentences of John 21.25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John is saying, look what happens when you believe. Look what happens when you trust this Jesus. And he, he has the incidents there, water to wine, the clearing of the temple, Nicodemus, who's a bright guy, the woman at the well, who's got other challenges, the royal official's son is healed, the pool of Bethesda healing, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, woman caught in the act of adultery, set free, Lazarus raised from the dead. And, and right in the middle, there is this verse, John 3.16. John 3.16 is sandwiched between the story of Nicodemus at the start of that chapter. Nicodemus was like a leader in culture. He was a thought leader, if you will. He was a, a political religious leader in the Jewish community. If he had degrees, he'd have a PhD and a THD and all kinds of things. He was brilliant. And Jesus just tosses out a little something, says, so what you need, Nicodemus, is to be born again. And he says, say what? And again, that's both paraphrase. But what Jesus does with us is he comes along and challenges the lesser gods in our life. Intellect is tremendous, but it's not big enough to be God. And then there's the woman at the well in chapter 4 of John. And um, she's, she's not an up and outer like he is. She's sort of a down and she's an outcast in a culture of outcasts, according to the Jewish people, Samaritans. And she can't even come to the well, apparently, when other people do. And Jesus tosses this piece out. He says, why don't you go tell your husband? And she says, this conversation they're having. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And her next line is wonderful. Sir, I, uh, I perceive you're a prophet. So you've got people at both ends of the spectrum, and Jesus brings life to both, because she thinks if she can get the right relationship, then her world will be cool, it'll all be good, and relationship is tremendous. You folks who have heard me know that I'm all over that in terms of how I think about it, but, it, but relationship in and of itself is not big enough to be God. It's not. So... And here's this guy with John 3.16 in the end zone. Well, he couldn't have done that like in the year 1000 because it wasn't till the 11th or 12th century, I think it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, said, why don't we take these scrolls because how do we find the, 
the, the place. So he put them into chapters. And then it wasn't until 1551, as I understand it, that somebody came along and said, we really need smaller divisions. Why don't we put verses in? So you couldn't, you couldn't even know what John 3.16 was until 1,500 years after Jesus. And so here's this guy with John 3.16 in the end zone. Here's, here's the verse for those of you who may not be acquainted with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a statement framed in action verbs. God so loved the world, the cosmos, that's the word, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, here's the word, believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So my question for you is how does that verse read in your life? How does that read in your life? I'll tell you how it reads in mine. Many of you have heard me over the years know that I have a favorite definition of love. It's not original, but uh, this is the definition. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. Ruth and I used to do marriage retreats back in the day when we'd been married 20 or 25 years. And now we've been married 55, and we don't know as much as we did then, so we don't do retreats anymore. But, we, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, she would always say, when I would say that, she'd say, Dick, you need to tell folks that they need the third party of Jesus in there for that relationship because no human being can absolutely meet the needs of another human being. You cannot fully do that. So I read it this way according to that. For God so loved Richard Foth, that's me, that he accurately estimated that he was a creep and needed a redeemer. So he adequately supplied a redeemer in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth so that Foth can be set free and live with him forever. That's, that's the Foth version of John 3.16. My favorite, ver- I mean, you can get all kinds of Bibles online. You can get the King James. You can get the New International. You can get the... American Standard Version, you can get the message, you can, but my fav- one of my favorite versions is uh, the one that Wycliffe Bible Translators brought out in 2000, it's the Hawaiian Pigeon Version, and uh, I shared this once before, but it, it reads like this, God when get so plenty love and aloha for the people inside the world, that he went send me, his one and only boy, so that everybody that trusts me no get cut off from God but get the real kind life that stay to the max forever. I shared that at Timberline Church back in Fort Collins where we live one time, and they had a run on Hawaiian pigeon Bibles. You know, people were calling and said, why? Where do... Anyway. When John says, for God so loved the world, or when the Holy Spirit says it through him, he's accurately reflecting the words of Jesus. Jesus wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe. If, if you don't hear anything else this weekend from me, if you can't remember it, believe me, I understand you don't remember. I don't remember, okay? But if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Who you choose to trust in your life, who you choose to trust determines your whole life. 
who you choose to trust and what you believe about that person shapes your entire destiny. I mean, think about it. In a world of 10,000 voices on that phone, which voice do I choose to trust? Which one? You're saying to me, Foth, why are you so obsessive on this? What? Why are you so insistent? I'm insistent because he is. Listen in John 6, 25 through 29. Some people follow Jesus. He's fed 5,000. He's done all these miracles. And in verse 28, it says, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? The works God requires. And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. We say, I want to do, I want to do kingdom work. Good. Trust him. That's the work. You say, isn't it fantastic that we've got Ebenezer's and we've got this side at Barracks Row and we've got Echo Stage and we've got Georgetown and we've got all of these things and we've got that square block down there, that property, going to do stuff down the road. And isn't that, that was tremendous. That's, that's the work. No, no, that's not the work. That's the result of somebody trusting. The miracle theater is not an end in itself. This place is the result of a bunch of somebody's believing, trusting for things to happen. When you go on this mission trips, whether you're going to the Congo or where the, the other place, whatever it is that you're going, the key part of that is trusting God as you go, that lives will be touched for his glory so that somebody will hear, why don't you come and go fishing with me? Want to go fishing? I'm here in part this week because on Thursday will be the 66th National Prayer Breakfast. National Prayer Breakfast started in 1953 when Ike was the president. I won't go into the whole story, but essentially Congress, certain members of Congress, House and the Senate, uh, have these little groups. On Wednesday and Thursday mornings, any senator or House member can come. And uh, it came to their attention that it'd be great to pray for the first family of the United States. So in February of 1953, they had their first national or presidential prayer breakfast, is what they call it. And Ike Eisenhower was a great friend of Conrad Hilton, the hotelier. And Conrad said, why don't you have it at my hotel, the Mayflower at that time, and uh, I'll pay for it. We wish he still paid for it. But the, but the fact there was 200 men only and all that, and then they had a women's one, and then they integrated them in the 60s under Kennedy Johnson and so forth. So on Thursday, there'll be 3,500 people from 150 nations at the Hilton, Washington. Some years ago, somebody invited a young multi-multi-millionaire from one of the stands. I don't know if it was Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or Baluchistan, I don't know which stand. But because it had been controlled by the Soviet Union, the mosques, the, the synagogues, churches were gone. And so he was an atheist. He just, and he came because he had a friend who invited him, which is what the breakfast is about. It's a, the breakfast is a breakfast at Levi's house. Like all the wrong people show up. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And so they, they, this young man came. He went and he heard the speaker. I, I can't remember who the speaker was. He came back up to the suite where his friend was staying, and when he walked in, the friend said, so Ahmed, or whatever his name was, 
He said, what do you think? And he stood for a moment in the doorway, and then he said, I think, I believe. Well, that, it's very dangerous to believe. Very dangerous. Because it, it starts a chain of events that deepens that kind of trust. Believe and trust are the same word in the New Testament, okay? Faith, belief, trust, they're the same word. What's interesting about John is that believe or trust is never used as a noun. It's always a verb. It's always an action. Believe or trust is used 98 times in the Gospel of John. Never as a noun, always as an action verb, because believing is a dynamic thing. And Jesus wants them to do the hard work of believing. He, he knows that miracles won't last very long. He understands that. I have a friend named Steve Moore who was a speechwriter for governor and a senator from the same state. He's a, he's a seminal thinker. And he wrote this, he doesn't want us to be consumers endlessly sampling the benefits of faith. God wants me to be convinced of who Jesus is. Once I do that, once I'm convinced of who he is, this Jesus, I have no choice but to do what Jesus says. When I believe that way, that's all I want to do, is do what he says. So, loving God with all of me and loving my neighbors, all of them, is the hardest work any human can do. Trusting God and trusting others. So, I would like to submit to you as we wrap this up this weekend is that this is not a simple end zone verse. This is an end game verse, full of action ver verbs. If you were to come with me to Fort Collins, Colorado, where I live, it's a town of about 160,000, but the congregation we're associated with, and I get to be part of the teaching team, back in the day, back 30 years ago, was 80 people. Now it's like 5,000 people. But there was a moment in time when something happened that changed the character of the church. And very quickly, I'll tell you what it was. It's a college town, Colorado State University, 47,000 students, sort of a hidden gem. It's, it's a wonderful place. And um, one of the congregants and his wife were hairstylists in Campus Town. And they had young women come in and do hair. And the, the guy was a natural um, evangelist, if you will. He easily talked about, you know, hairstyle and pizza and Jesus, like all in the same tone, you know, just that sort of thing. And this very beautiful girl came in, and they were having a conversation, and she said to him, could I have lunch with you sometime? He said, why would you want to do that? He said, well, you're so, she said, you're so different from the other guys I know. You don't, you don't hit on me all the time and stuff like that. And he said, okay. So they had lunch, and then at lunch, she said, could I, could I try that congregation where you, that church? Where you? He said, oh, I don't, I don't think you want to do that. She said, well, why not? Well, you probably wouldn't want to do that. She said, I do want to do that. He said, really? I don't, and she said, well, if you don't want to take me, I'll just go. He said, no, 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 I'll, I'll take you. What he hadn't, what she, what I know that you don't know is that what she did for work as a college student was she was an exotic dancer. And um, he, he took her, and she was dressed sort of, and so he said, why don't, we, why don't we sit in the balcony? And she said, what are we doing up here? She got up and walked right down to the front row, and he went down and sat beside her. And that day, Derry Northrup, the pastor, started speaking, and in the middle, she looked over at the guy and said, did you tell him I was coming? 
because he's, talk, he's talking to me. And at the end, when they gave an invitation to come to leave that and come do this, she raised her hand. And on Thursday, the next Thursday, the pastor got a call at his house. I have no idea how, he, how she got her number and said, hi, this is Janie. I was, I was at your meeting that you had, and at the end there, I came down and got that book that you give out. It was the New Testament. I got that book, and um, I, I read it through, parts of it several times, and I just had a couple of questions. I said, what's that? He said, well, I read that 1 Corinthians part, and in there it says that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and um, she said to uh, so, like, have you read that part where it says that? He said, yeah, yeah, I, I read that. He, he said, uh, she said, do you believe that? He said, I do. She said, well, if that's true, I, I probably shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But the only reason I'm doing it is because I'm trying to save money for law school. And if some guys want to come and watch half-naked women dance and stuff, I'm, if they're dumb enough to do that, I'm smart enough to take their money. She said, but, but, but I need the money. But I read this, this Matthew guy. He said that I shouldn't worry about tomorrow because he's going to take it. She said, have you read that part? He said, yeah, I read that. And she said, do you, do you believe that? She said, I believe that. He said, she said, then, then I'm in. What do I need to do? He said, well, why don't you be baptized? She, he described what that was. And so a couple of weeks later on a Sunday night, they closed down the dance place where she was in Denver, and everybody showed up, walking down the center aisle dressed as they were with the bouncers with Pink Panther or whatever it was, and walking down, and, and there, there he said, there were wives covering their husband's eyes, say, do not look, you will go blind. And that night, and, and, she, and she told her fellow dancers, I love you, I'm not making a judgment, all I know is that I have believed what I read and the Holy Spirit lives in me and I can't do that anymore. And that night, six of the girls gave there because somebody believed and it changed how the people thought about that congregation. They said, here's a congregation that just anybody can come and it's about believing. So for me, there are two times in my life when John 3.16 struck me. One when I was seven, and I was in a British boarding school in South India, and they had a chapel, and the teacher said at the end of this chapel, if you want to know more about Jesus, just uh, go to the principal's office. Principal's office is a huge hurdle to the kingdom of God. <laughs> but the second, the second one was when I was 31, pastoring in Urbana, Illinois. And a young man we were recruiting to be campus pastor at the university suffered a rhythmic heart failure, which is when your heart doesn't beat correctly and you lose blood to your brain. And he was brain damaged. He was in the, he was in the hospital. They said he won't ever walk or talk again. And uh, pastor shares this story. I think it's on page 71 in Whisper. And uh, my friend Denny, who was 28, brilliant, funny, and I stood by his bed. And when somebody's brain damaged like that, you're talking to them. It's like shouting into a cave and not getting anything back. And you don't know where they went. They look the same, but you don't know where he went. And I can remember standing by his bedside saying to God, I believe the spirit of man dwells in the cortex of the human brain. And when the cortex is damaged, that person is no longer human. I can almost hear the Lord say, Foth again, you know. And I'm still, he didn't vaporize me. I'm still here. 
But he did start to walk again. He did start to talk. He's still, as far as I know, in a facility in Wisconsin. And, but there was a time there when he lost all of his memory. His brain was just like Teflon. He didn't know his hands were connected to his body. He didn't know his wife. He didn't know his girl. The only thing he knew was that he was born in Zion, Illinois. And I was his good friend, and I'd walk in, and he'd say, Hi, what's your name? I'd say, My name's Dick Foth. I'm your good friend. He said, Ah. Oh. So what's your name? I'd say, I'm, I'm Dick, both. Said, ah, have I asked you your name yet? And it just, like that. And it just makes you want to punch him, you know. And, and I just, I was so frustrated this one day. I walked in, and the speech therapist was holding up a, a picture of a cup saying, what is this, Denny? He said, I don't know. It's a cup. What's a cup? You put water in it. What's water? You drink it. What's drink? Sometimes we have hunches that turn out to be leadings of the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that the, that the Scripture, the, the Word of God, plunges down through intellect and emotion deep into our spirit. I don't know where Scripture hides in us. I don't know where it rests when we've brought it into our hearts. I don't know. But that day I had this thought. I said, Denny, and, and again, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't remember anything. I said, Denny, do you remember this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he stops and he gets this faraway look in his eyes and says, that if, that if I believe in him, I won't die anymore. I said, I said, Denny, do you remember this? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he picked it up on key and sang it all the way to the end. And the nurse about passed out. And I started bawling. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, my spirit is deeper than the cortex of the brain. And the scripture that's embedded in that spirit is there somewhere. It is this life-giving thing that goes on and on. This ain't just some old dude in the end zone saying John 3.16. This is almighty God who speaks galaxies into existence that says, I sent you my only son to redeem you from all the junk and I gave them to you, and if you believe, you get life that goes on forever. I don't know where it is, if there's a place in your own life and experience this weekend that you need to reboot trust. You say, you know, I, stuff happened and I blamed God, and I just, it's not like it used to be. I don't know. But the Holy Spirit of God, by his word, I believe, is calling us in this 2018 to reboot trust. We might be like the guy that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, because it's not straight on. But when we do, when we trust him, like we sit in these chairs, when we put our weight on him, it opens up all the possibilities in life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the mercy that is poured out through your son, Jesus. Help us to know that who we trust, who we listen to, determines our entire destiny. In Jesus' name, amen.